Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to the kind listeners who support us on buymeacoffee.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This is a message from Ikinarimaru Kenshiku Gaisho. Hi, we're a family-owned construction company that specializes in cutting windows into existing structures. And to be honest, we may have got a little carried away with our plans for expansion during the takeout boom, and now we're a bit overextended. Long story short, we took out some ill-advised loans from some scary people, and we need to find a bunch of new windows to cut. Fast. So, turn our desperation into your good fortune by adding a new dimension to your business. Want to avoid blame for people congregating indoors at your pachinko parlor or host club? Simply cut a whole bunch of windows into your building so your customers can remain safely outside and maintain social distance while reaching through a convenient aperture to throw balls at a pachinko machine or throw lavish gifts to a boy in a glittery suit. Yeah, you might not need a takeout window for your cram school, chiropractor's office or onsen, but would it hurt you to have one? Hire us to do a very reasonably priced structural evaluation and we'll let you know. Ikinarimado because the only thing that shouldn't be taken out is us if we can't repay those Yakuza. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Oli Horn. And joining us this week is Angela Ortiz, author, speaker, activist, and CEO of Place to Grow, as well as senior manager of corporate social responsibility for Adidas Japan. Angela first popped up on our radar after her successful cross-marketing initiative that provided the riverboat industry with sustainable flotation devices made entirely out of recycled trainers and tracksuits. Angela, thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby. Thanks for having me. On this week's show, local news reports that southwestern Japan is being hit with yet another round of unprecedented rainfall, which begs the question, what exactly do they think unprecedented means? We'll talk to Angela about her experience with natural disaster relief efforts in Japan, as well as how the climate crisis is affecting Japan's sustainability policies. Plus, Ollie's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ollie? Yes, this week's recommendation is actually more of an arc than it is a cruise, with priority seating available for any passengers who plan to travel with a pair of lyrebirds, periodical cicadas, Portuguese man o' war, or proboscis monkeys. All that and we'll give you the contact information for the Kyushu-based river cruise companies that are offering rewards for information about the current locations of their riverboats. But first, Soap Talk. <laughs> Angela, when we first met, you came on a Love FM radio show I was doing to talk about your uh, efforts in disaster relief in Minami Sanriku in Tohoku after the uh, March 11th tsunami earthquake and Fukushima meltdown uh, disasters. And you've gone from there over the course of like 10, 11 years to senior manager of corporate social responsibility at Adidas as well as uh, CEO of your own company, Place to Grow. I've got to ask, uh, how did that come about? And also, can we have some free shoes? Uh, yes, <laughs> and a simple question, but I'd have to give them to you as a personal gift. But it's worth getting them. They, they have, we have some awesome shoes made of completely recycled plastic. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I started in 311 after the disaster as a first responder, um, in 2015, rebranded the organization to focus on community building, and along the way was sort of the point person for uh, hundreds of different corporations for their CSR programs, helping them develop like weekend retreats for volunteers, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 2016, 
I mm. sort of leverage my experience to go full time in corporate and help companies set up more holistic, sustain either sustainability focused or social impact focused programs. I'm moving away from you know day like one day programs or one day events into real partnerships with local communities focused on long term support. Now, nothing makes our listeners more delighted than corporate speak like holistic sustainability solutions. <laughs> So I'd like to hear more of those kind of words, please. What what does it actually mean to say that companies are sustainable? Because like, isn't the the point of a company right is just like generate money for its shareholders. Uh, if it makes money, the company's doing well. If it doesn't make money, it's doing bad. No one needs companies to to, to be good guys. We know they're bad guys. So that whole narrative has been under debate for decades, uh, with many people believing that yes, companies should only be um, you know, taken into account should only, sorry, companies should only serve their shareholders. And other people think companies by nature of existing already have an impact. They should be responsible about the social and environmental impact alongside the financial. Because if you don't make any money, you don't have any employees, you don't exist, you might as well have never existed to begin with. Right. So I think, to be honest, my personal perspective, which is all I'm talking about here, is that it really depends on the company and what their values are. And that's been the case for the last you know 100 years. Unfortunately, we have not had the luxury of social media and transparency in the 80s, 70s, 60s. And that change in people being able to see what's happening with their very own eyes has shifted the landscape of CSR completely. How have you found that it shifted the landscape in Japan? Because I feel like there's something to be said for the idea that Japanese companies do have kind of more of a holistic, traditional, sustainable approach, but ding, ding, at ding. the same time... Lovely buzzwords, Bobby. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, a lot of foreigners come to Japan and, and notice the things that Japanese society and Japanese companies do that strike us as very unsustainable. Like the one peach wrapped in plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inside another bubble plastic, inside a plastic bag, yes. But what you have to remember is that the way we behave in sustainability is just a representation of the country's values already in and of itself. So in America, we're not too picky about bruised peaches, so we never would think to waste resources on that. In Japan, the value of perfect peaches is very high comparatively. And so when we look at how companies can make a difference, we are looking at, you have to look at what is the company's core business and can just by their business, how do they accelerate or amplify the positive impact they can make? And those stories have been decades in the making. And you see a huge shift in activation of those only, I'd say, these last 10 years. And to your point, how did that change happen in Japan? This was definitely after 3.11, the disasters in Tohoku that happened when like they had departments that were dormant that did this thing called CSR and it was maybe to help a developing country. They had programs in Africa and suddenly their very own communities needed help. What's your perspective on CSR being, as you mentioned, kind of one department within a company that is kind of delegated to a small team to kind of check that box versus the company as a whole changing their mission to making sure that what they're doing is necessarily good. How do you see CSR evolving in companies to be, as you mentioned, less of this small little organization that checks a box to rather changing the nature and purpose of a company? So what you've just described is what I refer to as PRCSR. And it was sort of the, the 
predecessor to what we see now, which is sort of purpose-driven brands. And even what you see in cause marketing, where it was them scrambling to figure out how do they actually manage both? Uh, what is the accurate, or let's say, what is the holistic and uh, long-term approach is actually take a look, taking a look at their business, the resources it takes to run it, and those include social capital and environmental capital, and then saying, do we want to be here in 20, 50, 100 years? Or are we okay dying out in 10 years? And if so, they don't really need to make long-term changes, build roadmaps to more sustainable materials. But if they are a brand that wants to be here for over 50 years, they know from a business standpoint that uh, they have to change the, the way they approach fuel, the way they approach materials, the way they approach their waste. All of those things become huge business factors for sustainability, which literally just means the ability to sustain themselves. So Japan by River Cruise is a brand that Bobby and I want to continue to see existing for, for at least 50 years. We currently don't have a CSR officer. What should we look for in so that So you hire? should look for someone who can guide you in a strategic perspective on where you're already... Oh, I love it. A strategic where perspective. Your, where are your business partners? How do they exist? What are those transactions? And then just look at the environmental and the social impact that you're already making. Okay. What what impact are we making, Bobby? Uh, minimal. I think minimal, which I mean, we've got a very low carbon footprint. Yeah. Fewer people that listen to the show, the less power that's consumed. Uh, but people do still nevertheless send us messages, which is bad for the environment. Bobby, what did we get this week? We've got one from Brian from Fukuoka, who is from go. Ishikawa. And he says, hi, cruisers. I'm in a bad way and could use some advice. I'm more or less bedridden presumably with tuberculosis. Are there any podcasts that you can recommend to help me while away the hours because I've exhausted the JBRC back catalog and need something else? Uh, Ali, do you have any podcasts that come to the top of your head that you could recommend? I'm not really a fan of podcasts as a medium. I think they're self-indulgent and typically pretty low quality. <laughs> I concur. I concur. They're a waste of time. <laughs> right, Bobby, let's take a look at the news. Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? The biggest thing going on uh, across Japan, I think, and also here in Kyushu, is the record-breaking raining and flooding. Um, at this point, I think they're up to 55 confirmed fatalities. Uh, and this is the third year in a row that there has been record-breaking rain throughout Kyushu, places like Kumamoto, Kagoshima, Saga, Fukuoka. And yeah, when looking at the video footage, this is serious. This is... Homes literally being swept away, river banks breaking. I think it's close to a million people that are now uh, in some kind of evacuation zone and being asked to leave. Yeah. About 1.38 million people have been asked to seek refuge. And this is in the context of coronavirus, where typically refuge centers are already presumably hotbeds of disease. This is this is really bad. Well, there are two opposing forces at work here. One is that over the last couple of years, there have been people who have seen the news when uh, evacuation warnings went out and went unheeded, and that led to deaths. So people are more inclined to listen to the early warnings. That's one of the forces. The other is coronavirus. So on one hand, you want to heed the early warnings and more people are more inclined to evacuate than in previous years. But on the other hand, they are very concerned about going to these evacuation centers where you can't really as easily avoid the sanmitsu, 
the three conditions of kind of like being packed into a space together. So people are having this debate uh, of what risk should they take. Angela, you've worked in these kind of disasters before. How do you communicate to people who are facing these kind of difficult decisions what their decision matrix should be? So that's a really tough question and even more complicated to answer because it's so location specific. It's so local specific. But I did read something the other day which really struck at me and reminded me of this was how uh, it was a small restaurant in the Kumamoto area that had been um, engulfed and he had just gotten over sort of the the sort of soft lockdown that we had experienced. And he was just saying, you know, I've, I've lost already revenue and now the floods come. Uh, it's just too much. And what's really interesting to see is the level of these, you know, because we've always had typhoons in Japan, right? We always get heavy rainfall. But now every year they're being categorized as disaster level. And that is something we haven't seen before. I remember the, the first time one of these once in a hundred year storms popped up two or three years ago, and then it happened again the next year. And then it was like the third year in a row that you've got a once in a hundred year storm. It's like, you're going to have to redo your terminology there. So looking at the bigger picture, this is due to climate change. That much, I reckon, is beyond doubt. Yeah, um, well... I think there's like half a population of America who might disagree with that. But for anybody with a head on their shoulders, uh, yes. this is climate crisis. And Japan is one of the countries that's most obviously affected mm -hmm. right now by climate crisis. It's really ironic because, you know, in 1997, Japan was at the forefront of climate action. It's the birthplace of the Kyoto Protocol, where they were one of the first countries to say, let's limit our greenhouse gases and let's uh, and the country became synonymous with cutting carbon. But fast forward 21 years and Japan has really struggled to actually make significant progress on reducing its own emissions. They they still have a, mm. something like 56 percent of their energy is fossil fuels. And 20% is renewable, 20% nuclear. So like, we haven't really seen any growth here. And, and that's surprising considering the impact that it's having now. Of course, the thing that I knew about Japan before I ever moved there was Japan is not a great position for a country, right? It's, it's, it sits on three tectonic plates. It's an island with choppy seas all around, right? Like you wouldn't choose to put Japan where it is. I mean, I think if Japan had a choice, they wouldn't choose to be next to Korea and China uh, for different reasons, uh, let, let alone the fact that it's a it's an environmental uh, hothouse of, of threats. Yeah, but to imply that they're used to disasters, I think is fair, but not necessarily the kind that they're seeing in the last couple of years. I mean, earthquakes, volcanoes, uh, tsunamis that come from tectonic action, and then there's a, a typhoon season that they're used to. But because of climate change, they've seen a very large shift in the ways typhoons move in the seasons and the patterns that rain come through and places that don't generally get these kinds of heavy rainfall or storm force winds are now having to deal with them. Um, it's like it's like in America when uh, the hurricanes now, they're not going through Florida, they're hitting higher up on the East Coast and devastating places that aren't used to dealing with hurricanes. Angela, do you see any of that reflected in the way they seem to be struggling with the response for the the rain-related disasters? So we've actually seen progress in the last 10 years in disaster response in Japan. Like, you have to keep in mind that in 1995, when the Kobe earthquake happened, the government didn't even know that it was their responsibility to issue a response. It took them one week to send military to the region. And I think I read today that, you know, they're doubling 
the military force that is being sent, or to be fair, the Japan self-defense force that's being, you know, sent to the region. And so Japan has consistently been able to learn a little from its disasters. But in the grand scheme of things, when you compare them to other countries, they're still quite behind. And this comes down still to really, really difficult um, in taking learnings. So they, they kind of, through each disaster, they take one little baby step up in terms of coordination, in terms of how they send resources, in terms of how they approach it. But from my perspective, I, I really applaud the progress that we have seen. You know, they're, they're there on the ground right away. Mm. They have all the prefectures and the cities have a designated NPO center now. They have communications in place. Um, Ten years ago, we didn't have any of this. So what is the playbook? When the meteorological agency says, hey, a huge amount of rain is about to hit, what what happens first? So I haven't actually seen their playbook, but one thing that's confusing is it's going to be prefecture by prefecture. And that was that's a huge issue always because... Mm. You know, these disasters don't care about what city they're they're coming through. And for communities who have completely different protocols in regular life to now come together in a disaster scene is what happens is they spend more time sort of arguing, communicating, going back, re, re, having re-meetings than they do in actually, you know, acting as first responders. Uh, but what will happen is a, a preset sort of schedule of events will sort of pop into place. Um, for example, the COVID um, entity will start communicating between nonprofits and the government. And like already I see on Facebook friends and acquaintances of mine who, are, who work in emergency response. They're on the ground. They've got their diggers out. There are companies that have already sort of like they have preconditions, pre, pre-contracts preset contracts, companies that have preset contracts with the government to send in trucks, provide water, um, all these sort of emergency mm. needs. Um, these things will have been uh, pre- preset. And they're just ready to go. And they're ready to go. I'm remembering something now about the 311 disaster. Wasn't there some some city council board that was meeting to decide what to do when the tsunami hit and the city council board was swept away by the I tsunami. I heard the same story. I don't remember which town it was, though. An interesting sort of, just to bring this down to a human level, for example, in Tohoku, they had a 20-minute warning, right? And some people were able to escape to safe ground within 10 minutes and then thought, oh, I have time. Let me go back and find somebody. And then going back, they then got swept oh, no. away. And and these types of, you know, preparedness on a very local level is still not enough in Japan between the local school and the, the supermarket. And is that where an organization such as yours come in? Whereas the, maybe the, the, the national government, the military are, are there to, you know, make sure that electric pylons aren't falling on roads and making sure that where possible barriers are put up. But ultimately, it does come down to organizations such as yours to make sure on a human level, this person has enough to eat and this person can connect yeah, with their so loved ones exactly or, or whatever it is. that's exactly the space that NGOs now are so important for. They fill those little gaps in a way that a corporation can't yeah. and a way that a government can't. Um, depending on the focus of the NGO, that's really their role and that's their benefit to society. So a lot of the work that I've been doing this week, the TV shows in the areas are all focused on um, disaster mode. They're doing, they're covering the disasters, they're giving information, they're broadcasting information. And one of the things that they keep telling people is how to access the hazard maps. 
And do you know how long they've been producing these hazard maps? I feel like it's only been in the last five or six years. Yeah, I would say the same. Uh, I remember when they first started publishing those in Minatoku. And that was only uh, yeah. Yeah, about five years ago. What are these maps? I don't know what they are. Each municipality prepares them and they make them available online. But I think they also mail a hard copy to all the residents of that municipality. And it lists the potential risks and hazards for each area that you live in. So you can look up your address and see a map and kind of like click this layer on the geographical map to tell you whether or not you're at risk for earthquake, whether or not you're at risk for flooding, uh, tsunami, anything like that. It's whatever potential natural disaster hazards are in your area. And it also lists all the evacuation centers. Right, okay. But it's a very passive resource. Even the websites that they have up, a lot of them they're just projecting your risk. They don't necessarily update in real time. I think there are ones that do update in real time, but it's it's like a hard copy. It's a static thing that you just have to look up on your own beforehand and go, oh, I live in an area that might be at flood risk. I might want to take the evacuations a little warnings a little bit more seriously. This makes me think of the COVID app that they have right now that is like in real time, every day updating. Mm. And I'm just wondering if maybe that's something we'll see on the horizon. A, a more intuitive app that allows people, like even something like, that's, yeah. see, that's a CSR thing that Google should do, is give you your safest, fastest escape route. Well, th this is something which I'm reading in the news reports, that looking at the flooding that's happening right now, there are s reports of people not knowing what to do people for example wondering whether they should wait it out for another day or they're not sure whether it's more risky to maybe start driving somewhere to escape or whether it's more risky to go to one of the uh, support centers where they might be at risk of covid and something which i imagine the the people on the ground the boots on the ground have to struggle with is while in the abstract there might be the perfect plan you have to convince each individual who's maybe going through a very traumatic time maybe they're seeing their cars being washed away or they might even have i don't know actually had their their loved ones killed or injured you're having to convince them on a granular one by one basis you do this you do this you do this it must be really hard a lot of the casualties that they're seeing right now this year and in previous years are older people people in their 70s 80s and above and they suspect that there's an aspect of it that the older you are the harder it is for you to physically evacuate but there's also an aspect, we're doing all these evacuation warnings on TV and the second we cut to commercial, the casters are turning to each other and going, these old people are going, when it happens, it happens. If it's my time, it's my time. I'm not leaving my house. I think that is a really real factor. I'd agree. Seen it before. Yeah. And I did see... Uh, I did see a handful of segments where they go inside the evacuation centers right now to see how they are set up to deal with the COVID threat. And they do temperature readings when you go in, they have everybody fill out like a little self-report form. And if you aren't feeling well, they put you in a separate holding area. And then the people who go into the main holding area are also this year, starting this year, they're being given these cardboard partitions. They have these kind of like, three meter by two meter cardboard boxes set up with a cardboard bed inside. So each individual person or they have larger ones for families gets their own like cardboard room 
that's set up with the mandatory two meters of distance between them, and they fill a gymnasium with them. The cardboard box, like, ironically, actually first debuted as support for the Hinanjo um, in the Kumamoto disaster three, four years ago. In Tohoku, we didn't have those, and it was yeah. really difficult because people were on top of each other uh, in terms of no space, and, and, and people actually had as much stress and mental sort of disorders come because of the duress of being, of having no privacy. And actually it was an interest, it was considered an innovation. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting just from, just because I think society is fascinating. I'm a nerd like that. How these are actually becoming even more valuable because they also pro provide that distance naturally that we didn't have, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. So I have hope for Japanese um, in the way they they continually integrate innovation into their the way they approach supporting their citizens. I, I agree, and I hate to say this, but agreeing with that and hearing you say that also depresses me on a level. Because the same TV show that I work for did a story three weeks ago on one of these companies that had produced this new innovative cardboard partition, and it could be resized, and it could be this and that. And this was before the rain started, and it was something that there's definitely a demand for, something that there's a use for, something that will provide a positive change. But they produced this segment celebrating this company. It was a really upbeat, kind of cheerful, happy segment. And while I applaud the product itself, I can't ignore the fact that we're in a situation where there's a need for this product that is so sad. And the idea of celebrating that they built these cardboard boxes for people to live their lives in struck me as kind of like akin to like a book release for a Soylent Green cookbook. <laughs> like, like it's, it's this horrible situation that you're making the best of. Something that shocks me is Japan is one of the richest countries in the world. And yet Japan with essentially unlimited resources and super smart people working on these problems still there are massive massive failures in terms of the response in terms of getting people the the basic uh, necessities that they need in terms of evacuating people and uh, and I and I think about how it's not just Japan that has problems like this, like this. It's also developing countries, and Japan exports a lot of these ideas and technologies to other countries to respond to disasters. Do you think there is a Japanese way of responding to disasters? Do you think that this is another example of Japan having refined its processes? I think there's pros and cons to each culture in the way they approach this. There's things that they can learn from each other, and really, the best practice is for more international sharing. This was definitely a learning that came out of the 311 disasters. Japan tends to be very slow in integrating new processes and approaches, which often leads to really negative outcomes. On the other hand, if you compare some of the American approaches, they're, they're much more, they're faster, they're integrated, but there's a lot of tension and chaos and that can have other problems. There's a lot more, like there's more looting mm -hmm. and there's more crime and, and Japanese are all nicely lined up and everybody thinks, oh, it's just way more organized over there. But in fact, that's not actually the case. Um, but it's really hard to say one is better than the other. In fact, I don't think you can. And, and how mm -hmm. does the initial response have an effect on how that area is able to recover in, say, five years or 10 years time? I can tell you a story about this. Great. We love stories on this podcast. <laughs> and it's, this is real. This was so eye-opening for me working in disaster recovery and then community building long term was. So I remember 
so probably what is happening now in Kumamoto, Kasumi Gaseki, somebody somewhere will draw lines and say, okay, this this team goes there. These people get that kind of support. I'm allocating based on numbers and stats what type of emergency aid goes where. But you and I, Bobby or Ollie, will be neighbors living in the same space, and my house is completely destroyed. Bobby, you still have all your house because of whatever reason. You're richer. You're up on the hill, and Ollie, only half of your house is gone. We all go to the shelter, and we're all given different mm. supplies, and we're stressed out. We're tired. You know, we're hurt, and suddenly, I turn to Bobby and go, "What the fuck? Why do you get all of that?" Or actually, sorry, it's the opposite. You haven't lost anything, so you'll you will get very little, maybe even nothing, because technically your dot in Kasumigaseki equaled no supplies for that family, right. and that will tear us apart as a community. And the longer the recovery goes on, the bigger these gaps become. Ten years later, five years later, you and I are no longer cool neighbors. We're not tight anymore. I'm not talking to you. Our kids are not playing. With each other, and this is the great long-term negative impact that happens over and over and over again. Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 43 of Japan by River Cruise. Thanks as ever to those who support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise and becoming members. The extra bits are as ever in your special feed. And thanks to our guest this week, Angela Ortiz. Uh, very insightful conversation. We enjoyed it a lot. And I'm looking forward to uh, receiving my copy of your book. Thank you, Bobby. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so the core, the core message of the book are eight key principles that make up what I believe is a solid and well-rounded mindset for anyone who wants to make a positive impact in society. Uh, these are the crucially important understandings of human interaction, emotions, and community. Uh, and so it's kind of the development of this mindset that is the goal and purpose of this book. I learned a lot from these last 10 years. I've made a thousand mistakes. So I share a lot of personal stories. And then I kind of give you a takeaway as a reader on suggestions of how this might help you become a more effective leader. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next week.